Hey everyone, this is your host Shabad Singh. I wanted to wish everybody a happy new year and um, just say thank you for all the support that you've given us. Um, to all of you who are listening, uh, we really appreciate it and uh, we always love to hear from you as well. So always feel free to reach out. As you've noticed, uh, we've slowed down our releases to just about um, one a month. And that's just because I'm really busy working on the Bernie campaign, which I am super excited to do. Um, so for the next several months, you can expect one solid, uh, engaging interview like we always do. Um, and uh, once the campaign is done, hopefully we'll pick things back up and, uh, and uh, move into high gear. Um, so yeah, thanks again for your support. and. Uh, all the best and all of Guru's blessings to you and your family as we go into the next year. Take care. Hello and welcome to The One, a podcast about Sikh history, philosophy and culture. Hosted by Shabad Singh and produced by me, Rishwajit Singh. In this episode, Shabad interviews Jwala Singh about his great research work and translation of Sikh historical texts. Jwala is the creator of Mangalacharan, which, in his own words, is a project dedicated to shedding light on the treasure trove of knowledge passed down by our ancestors, which has not yet been translated into English. For the past 10 years, Mangalacharan has provided translations of passages from important theological and historical texts within the Sikh tradition. They discuss the Suraj Prakash Granth, one of the most important historical Sikh texts, the context for it and how Sikh scholarship has changed through the years. Finally, they talk about Jwala's new book, 54 Punjabi Proverbs, which contain 54 Punjabi Proverbs transliterated and translated into English, and the story behind it. Jwala and Shabbat also discuss the lack of scholarship in the Sikh tradition today, and the lack of funding in the field. On that note, if you appreciate the work Shabbat and I do to bring you this show, and highlight the incredible work people in the community are doing, consider supporting the show on Patreon. We invest all money in consistently getting you the show and increasing the quality. Go to patreon.com slash the one podcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash t-h-e-o-n-e podcast. By supporting the show, you can get perks like being able to listen to the show earlier and access to the monthly Q&As. Now, without further ado, here's the interview with Jwala. Uh, Jwala Singh, welcome to The One. How are you doing? I'm good, man. It's so nice to have you back on the show. No, thanks for having me back. Yeah. Um, you are, I think, the reigning champion. I think you're the three-time appearance. <laughs> uh, that just means and... I'm. Uh, I have a lot of spare time, is what that means. I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely what it means. Um, and you, we all know that uh, your PhD and uh, also working at the same time is all a clever ruse um, just so you can have time to do podcasts with me. Exactly. It gives me the cred to do that, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Um, so we're, you're on today. Uh, we, we spoke um, after you did a, uh, a talk on, uh, and we're going to talk more about what this is, but but on the Gur Pratap uh, Suraj Prakash, which is an important text at the um, Jakara Scholars um, Forum. Um, can you just talk a little bit about that experience and, and about uh, scholars? 
Yeah, Scholars is great. Um, they get together every year. Uh, they call students, professors who study anything related to Sikh studies or anything even in the South Asian department. And, you know, students can come in, do a talk on a paper they've written. Professors can come and speak as well. So it's a great, uh, you know, a group where you can kind of share ideas, bounce ideas off each other. You know, you get questions after. There's a panel discussion as well. So, yeah, I mean, the volunteers there at Tejikata, they do a great uh, job of bringing people in. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I always just want to give them a shout out because I think they do amazing work. And if folks aren't familiar um, with Jakarta, they should definitely check that out and definitely check out Sakalers. Um, but they did a live stream of uh, the talk that you did, which I was lucky enough to watch. And um, yeah, just... you spoke that day about um, this this important text, uh, the Gurpratap Suraj Prakash. Yeah, just so uh, yeah. the the listeners at home uh, know that, um, so the talk that uh, I gave at, at Scholars there regarding the Guru Pratap uh, text, so that's on my uh, YouTube page. Uh, you can find it by searching Mangala Charan on, um, on YouTube or just searching uh, Guru Pratap, Suresh, Prakash, Grant. I mean, all of these words are going to require uh, a lot of spelling out, but um, <laughs> I'm sure we, maybe we can attach a link to... Yeah, uh, we'll put links in the description for sure. Yeah. Um, and so that was, yeah, so so can you tell us about um, maybe generally uh, what is the Suresh, Prakash, um, Grant, and who was its author? Right. So a lot of people, <clears throat> when they talk about Sikh history, they may not know, okay, what are the, what are the most important texts uh, in regard to, you know, his Sikh historical texts? And that could be from the 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, right? Where do most of our historical stories of the gurus come from, you know, because we hear stories, maybe we go to the Gurdwara, again, he tells us a story, or we pick up a book in English, right? And it tells us a story. But what are the source of these stories, right? So when doing my research on Sikh history, you find that I would argue the most important text uh, is in regards to Sikh history would be this text called the Gurpratap Suraj Prakash Granth. So for short, people can just call it either Gurpratap or they call it Suraj Prakash. So this text was written in 1843. Well, it was finalized in 1843. It's a massive text. You know, this text um covers the life story of all the 10 gurus as well as a little bit of history after uh guru gobind singh so i mean that's what the contents are related to the the life stories so um and and who who wrote it the author was uh so he's called the great poet mahakavi or churamani meaning you know the crown jewel of poets because his poetic uh uh, expertise was was so widely recognized. His name was Santok Singh. Um, he was actually born to, this is interesting, um, because he was so well-educated uh, in Amritsar at the Gyanya Bunga <coughs> under Sun Singh. He was so well-educated, yet he was of like a very low caste, right? Um, and typically during that time, that would not be the norm, you know? So it does, mm -hmm. you know, that is an important thing that, to speak on because it does show that you know, at that time, you know, the, you know, the, the uh, Sikh community was very um, open to, you know, educating people of, of lower caste, which, which 
if you go to Punjab now, even, you know, I'm not telling any stories, you know, from school here. Right. And, you know, these are not uh, just rumors, but, you know, caste is still a big issue uh, in Punjab. Um, and even in the diaspora, strangely enough, you know, these uh, and notions of caste are are still relevant and still prevalent. And so he was, what, what, what caste, do we know what caste he was from and, and what his like familial background was? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, he's from the Shipa class. They're basically, um, people that, uh, uh, work with cloth and make fabric and make clothes. So, but his father was actually well-educated in Sikh literature as well. Uh, it was noted. And, uh, so he learned, uh, from his father until he was about 10, 11 years old. And then his father actually, cause he was from the surrounding, uh, surrounding villages around Amritsar. Mm-hmm. His father then took him to Amritsar. Um, and there's a Gyanya Bunga. So there's an institution Bunga where, uh, Gyanis would be, uh, taught and they would do further education. He was and, basically and, taken there. That used and, to be right across the Atlantic. Little bit, sorry, yeah. excuse me. Can you tell folks a little bit about what it meant to be, what a Gyani was and sort of um, what it meant to study under a Gyani and, and like what that kind of, that world might have looked like uh, that he that he was learning in? It's actually, that's a really good question. People um, to this day are still trying to undercover, I mean, figure out what it, exactly the extent of people's learning was at that time. Like what was the curriculum during that time, mm-hmm. you know? Because we have schools today that claim lineage all the way back to Guru Gobind Singh as well, right? Um, and many of them differ sometimes in their curriculum. You know, you have the Udasi Sampardai that came out of uh, Siri Chand, Guru Nanak's uh, son. You also have the Naramala Sampardai. You also, that came that started around Guru Gobind Singh's time. You have the Nahang Sampardai, you have the uh, Seva Panti. And they all, I mean, they all are similar in the sense that you know, it's quite different than a more missionary, you know, SGPC approach from the, you know, 1920s onwards. Yet, mm-hmm. you know, there's differences in, in curriculum. So, I mean, that is a question as to what, that is a good question as to what it meant to be a Gani, but what it did entail for him was um, learning Sanskrit, learning Farsi. This was under his formal teacher of Sansing. So he started that at, at the age of 10, 11. And so he learned Sanskrit as well as Braj Basha, which is the language he mainly wrote in, was Braj Basha, which is the language that um, the Dasam Grant and uh, Pai Gurdas's Kabit and Savaya are written. So, so it's interesting. So it sounds like an education at that time, because I think that um, maybe in, in modern, you know, times, folks who would learn um, Sikh like scriptural knowledge would probably be, I, I don't know this, but studying more of like Punjabi and then the texts in which say the city or the languages in which the city of Grand Sahib is written. Um, but, and not studying things like Persian and, and Sanskrit necessarily. Well, <clears throat> this is the thing is that Sanskrit and Persian will aid in understanding um they may not be, I mean, Farsi or Persian is used, uh, you know, heavily in, in Guru Granth Sahib, not right. as a primary language, but certainly you, I mean, that would help, that would aid in, in uh, the understanding of Guru Granth Sahib, but especially in regard to some writings of Guru Nanak. But um, Sanskrit and some of these other languages help as well in regard to grammar, uh, 
And um, it would be like akin to learning, um, you know, how people study the Bible. People might study Greek and Latin, some of the older languages as well, uh, mm-hmm. to aid in understanding. So what's also interesting is that he did not only write what people would call Sikh texts. So, for example, um, part of his study as well was likely, on account of his uh, teacher, writing things about Ram as well. So. His teacher wrote uh, a very lengthy version of the uh, Rama Charitmanas, which is basically the life stories of, of Rama. Mm-hmm. So their learning was very, um, it was much more uh, inclusive and it was very broad compared to what people might assume um, again, these learning would be nowadays. Right. It's like they were learning the tools that would give them access to the broader like cosmology or the broader kind of cosmos of knowledge in the context in which their society lived, not just sort of hyper-focusing into only what, um, only what texts or um, ideas had been produced in sick lineage. No, absolutely. And that's actually a point um, that does get missed in scholarship in that these people were were reaching out to the bro- uh, the broader community as well which is perhaps why their their works were so received so well because they did have an understanding of what else was going on around in the community so um poets from that time were well known it was not just it, it was not even an issue of okay these are hindu texts and these are sikh texts and these are islamic texts in the literary field whoever was in that literary field was writing across those, you know, nowadays we see them as quite um, solid boundaries. But at that time, to be a writer, to be in that literary community, it did mean you were you were writing about numerous things. So even Santok Singh, before he wrote the Gurpratap Surish Prakash Granth in its entirety, he wrote a very lengthy version, a vernacular version, so a Braj Pasha version of uh, the a mind as well so mm. he did have so so he was writing to uh, quite a wide audience and what we have so far left of his writings are only the writings that were probably for a sick audience like the uh garb ganjinitika which is a commentary on japji Sab, and we have the guru patap surish prakash grant which is uh the life story of the tangurus but he did write a a vernacular version of the Atama Puran as well, which is like a Vedanta text explaining um, Vedanta metaphysics. Mm-hmm. And he also wrote, um, you know, a dictionary, uh, a, like a vernacular uh, dictionary translating Sanskrit uh, words, difficult Sanskrit words. So there is, um, he was, he did, he was a very prolific writer in that he didn't only focus on um, uh, what we would call maybe a, a sick audience of today. Right, um, but that he was not alone in that. His teacher himself, Sun Singh, also wrote uh, the Ramacharitmanas, which is Tulsi Das's writing. He wrote that in Rajpasha. So, yeah, you made it. You in the video um, where you gave uh, your that this discourse. Um, somebody asked you a question that was in you know along these similar lines about sort of you know. Um, you know this this sort of broader um, intellectual tradition, and and you gave an answer that was like that that 
was talking about, um, you know, it's important to understand the the authors and how the authors understood Siki at their time, which does not necessarily mean like right or wrong, but that is how. So what's what's interesting, I think, is is that this person who is given the title heretofore only held by uh, the the title of uh, Mahakavi of great poet until that point in Indic tradition had been held only by uh, who, what was the name of the great poet that Kalidasa held yeah. that title right and so so this person is being held up at this extremely high level within the sick world um, and their their learning is grounded in this this very broad um broad tradition which i think is really interesting to understand that people who were highly respected were people who had studied vastly not sort of siloed themselves into like one one sort of avenue of thought would you say i mean when you look at other literature from that time period even the literature of the Dasam Granth, the literature of you know Guru Granth Sahib, they're not speaking only to. I mean, who's their audience, right? So even the yeah. tropes, the metaphors, the stories um, that they're using, the language that they're using, um, and some of these you know more difficult um, concepts that they're engaging with, they're they're engaging with a, a wider audience, like. You know, and a lot of the lot of the uh, passages of Guru Gansa, a lot of the uh, portions, the banis, are in audience with other groups like Siddh Gosht, Guru, uh, Guru Nanak speaking to the Siddhas, the yogis. You know, there's a, there's dialogues being um, there's dialogues happening, and through those dialogues is where you get um, either you get a meeting of the minds, or you know, there's a there's a disagreement there, right? So, sure. but it is a way that you can bring people in. You know, and that's right. I I think essentially what they were trying to do. I, especially when you look at to the Dasam Granth, you have you know all, all these portions of Bani speaking to different groups. You know, Chandi Chiritras are speaking to the uh, Shakti devotees, and and uh, you got all the Jobi Saftar, which is speaking to the Vaishnavite community. Rudra Saftar is speaking to the Shaivite community. Uh, you have the Hikayata and the Zafarnama that you know the Islamic community could you know engage with. So, you know, they're branching out as opposed to closing mm. their doors. And, um, and it was, I, I would imagine it was through that branching out um, that perhaps the community, community at that time expanded so vastly. Um, so before we actually get into the, the contents of the um, work, are there any, like, broader, like, social, political, economic however you can conceive, you know, you conceive of or from your reading, broader sort of context that we should be aware of in which it's being, um, this this is being uh, produced. And then also, uh, as you're referring to, kind of who is the um, the audience that um, the, that Kavi Sandoxing is writing to? Yeah, well, the audience is an interesting question. Sandoxing was patroned by uh, a few people. The main patron that he that he had was uh, Udaya Singh from Kathov. And um, 
the I, the issue of his patronage is actually a very difficult question um, that one of my professors, uh, Professor Obroy, um, he asked me a very difficult question when I wrote this paper. You know, he asked me why was such a great poet, you know, Santok Singh was so well re- renowned, you know, and he was, you know, writing all these great works. Why was he not in Ranjit Singh's, uh, under Ranjit Singh's patronage? Why was he, when you compare the state of Lahore, Ranjit Singh's Lahore state versus, um, you know, Odeh Singh's Kathal state, you know, it's like uh, the, the difference is enormous, right? Ranjit Singh, you know, the Sikh empire was this massive empire, yet Santok Singh was not patroned by this ma- massive Sikh empire. You know, he was patroned by a state that fell outside of Ranjit Singh's Sikh empire, you know? Um, so there's a lot of questions, a lot of digging that needs to go into that to figure out, I guess, the social, political, economic context of that time. Right. But I think one thing that we are missing, um, you know, as a general lay audience, is that for these works to be completed and for the training for these works, uh, for, for the training for these artists and these poets, you know, it does require a significant amount of resources uh, to go into producing somebody like a like a synthol um and i think that's a little bit um i think that, that point is largely missed in in the community mm-hmm. nowadays uh, especially in regards to when we think about okay how come we don't have you know the great musicians of the past or the great poets or the writers or, you know the community sacrificed a lot to produce these type of people um and when you look at perhaps how the community is funding their artists, their poets, their writers, their historians, their Gyanis even. Um, it's quite different from now and then. And um, to be honest, I think that does explain why there's such a lack of depth in terms of the knowledge base, um, in terms of, of the Gyanni community, in terms of the musicians, and, and, and certainly um, the community of scholars in India, you know, it's not very large. But there, and the people that do study this full time do have an incredible amount of, of knowledge. Um, but those people are so rare because it requires for them to sacrifice everything, um, right? To do it, um, it requires so the, the numbers, investment too. I mean, yeah. the patronage, right? The the will of folks who have uh, resources to invest in such things, which which brings on its own, you know, questions of. You know, and I think this is something we don't need to go into this, but I, and I wonder if you know one day we can. But just you know, the very fact that you know, in, a, in terms of like a political and economic sense, like the people that are patronizing these these artists are kings, monarchs who control vast wealth and who have their own interests and who are able to amass large amounts of wealth in order to patronize these arts who, who thus may have their own interests in doing such. Right. And, and so how, uh, and I don't think that we have the answers and this is, that's not really the scope of our conversation, but I guess that is something that's worth thinking about when we're reading, when we're reading anything from the past. It's really, um, it is interesting because you have all these texts, for example, you know, the, everybody knows uh, in the literary community, Mahan Kosh is this, uh, it's basically the go-to dictionary that people go to when trying to um, maybe understand meanings related to anything Gurbani related or historic history related. Um, that was assembled by Gansing. 
Um, so the state of Naba actually patron uh, Gansing to produce, uh, you know, this monumental, like this massive dictionary that people could use, you know. So every state was actually, it was kind of a currency to them to produce these type of texts. You know, it, it, it validated their um, position as a monarch by supporting these type of endeavors. So each state then started to make their own, like, for example, the Friedgord state. They then sponsored, um, you know, a vast committee of people to write uh, a commentary on Guru Granth Sahib, um, you know, a, a full-length commentary of the entire Guru Granth Sahib, which to that point has never been done. So we're talking nearly 150 years after uh, Guru Gobind Singh had left the earth that nobody had written a commentary on Guru Granth Sahib, uh, a full mm -hmm. commentary. So this state then took it upon themselves. This is in the late 1800s. And uh, assemble a, a big committee, and um, and they put their name on it. So you know the name of it is, is called Frith Gortika. You know, um, yeah. So it was a way for them to bolster their own, um, I guess, uh, uh, validity in terms of being a monarch and as their position in the Sikh community as well. They were basically in competition with each other. You know, basically who can produce. Uh, better works, you know, and they all put their own stamp on it at the end of the day. And I won't ask you to comment on this, but it's kind of just a passing thought is, you know, even today, the people who have the money, the individuals who have the finances to say fund the chair, the sick like chairs of uh, at universities and stuff like that, you know, I mean, and, and I, I don't really want to go down this, this rabbit hole on here. Um, but, you know, there are folks that we can see in different contexts who have different political uh, ideas and interests who have the wealth to fund chairs right now. And that means that the, the, the scholarship that gets produced um, may or may not be affected by who has the money to pay for it. I mean, you know, it seems to me. Um, but we don't need to go down that road. I think that's a scope, that's a that's a discussion for a whole other uh, episode. Um, yeah. So so you know, let's get back back on track. Um, can you tell us about what what are the general contents of the Gurpratap Suraj Prakash uh, Granth, and and sort of what what are what kind of themes and what kind of lessons um, or message is Kavi Santhoksing? Um, trying to share, and I know it's a monumental work, but maybe you can talk about themes more broadly. Well, to give people an idea about the work, when you compare this work with other Sikh history texts, um, for example, maybe ones that came out 60 years before, so you're looking at like a, a text like Mehma Prakash, or even a text that comes out in, I believe, the 1760s, uh, Bansavli Namma, these type of texts are much more historical in the sense that the way the author is writing them, they're saying, okay, the guru went here, he did this, this is what happened. He may have, the guru may have said one or two things here and there. But the Gurupurta Granth, this text goes heavy into detail. You know, it's a very, um, it's, uh, it's narrated with in a mass amount of detail in terms of um, drawing out on the emotions of the gurus, you know, specific instances of, you know, okay, what what are they wearing? It's a very, it's meant to be read and it's written 
um, like you're reading a story. So, you know, it is historically based. It is telling, okay, the stories of the gurus. But there's a lot more to the text than just, um, okay, the guru went here and then he went there. You know, this text, the idea of reading this text is to get a flavor of the philosophy while reading the text. So, um, Santok Singh has embedded in this historical text. This, I mean, this is why uh, the text is so prominent, is that he draws out a lot of the context related to Gurbani. So, for example, in, in the, four, the first two portions of, of uh, the text, it's called the Nanak Prakash, you know, the uh, stories related to Guru Nanak. And um, there's significant detail as to, okay, when Guru Nanak went here, he said these uh, lines of Gurbani, and it provides you a context of that Shabbat. Um, in a way, it brings to life the philosophy, you know, through the history. And I would say that's the main reason why uh, the text is so celebrated. That, along with uh, the fact that the text was just uh, written so beautiful, like uh, the poetics um, of the of the text is, is uh, no one has been able to match Santok Singh's writings, which is why he was called uh, the Mahakavi. Mm-hmm. So, so can you t- can you maybe talk a little bit about that style? I know that um, and and sort of what made it so special. I think what made it so special is that through reading the text, you get an idea about the Guru's personality. So in the stories, you know, for example, when they talk about Guru Arjun Devji and when Guru Arjun Devji got Shahidi, it mentions, okay, what was happening in the family then at that time, when the, when the family got news of this, when Guru Hargobind Sahib got news of this, you know, it mentions how a tear, you know, ran down his cheek, you know, showing that you know, these gurus had some, uh, you know, emotion. They, it personalized, it, it brought to life and made human the gurus in that sense. And, and Guru um, Arjun Deji's uh, wife, how she wanted to, you know, jump on the funeral pyre, you know, that she was so mm-hmm. distraught, you know, and that uh, Guru Hargobin actually stopped her. You, you know, you get a sense of the emotions, you know, based on mm-hmm. the context of what was happening. So it brings really to life, you know, it actually shows um, some humanity to the gurus as well, in the sense that um, if you're just reading a history book with, that can be maybe just uh, more of a skeleton type of history book where it just kind of dates, uh, it's not as personal. It doesn't uh, it doesn't draw um, emotion enough. Like the way that Santhok Singh is using poetics is really to draw out that emotion and create mm-hmm. that kind of connection to the gurus that, okay, you know, Sintoksin can be really uh, dramatic in, in his, and I don't say that in a bad way, I mean uh, poetically dramatic in, in the way he can explain things and, and, and write things in such a beautiful way that, um, you know, oftentimes uh, some Kathakars, some people doing discourse will, you know, if it's a very emotional story, they can start crying while, mm. um, while tell, telling the story, or they can start laughing. Like uh, the, the, the beauty of the text is that. It's it's the exact opposite of what we, you would imagine a historical book is, which people associate historical writings, oh, they might be a little dry, you know, because, sure. you know, such and such person went here and then he went there. This actually adds comedy. It actually adds, you know, the emotion, the sadness to some of the stories, you know, happiness in it. Um, it's a really it's a really fun text in that in that sense, which is why 
it became actually a standard for those who don't know when when Satoksing wrote this text the oral tradition around this which um you know I've, I've yet to substantiate in writing but the old oral um tradition around it is that he went to Akalta with the text and he he gave the text to the Akalta and he did a das that um he did a their prayer to them saying that okay if you like this please you know use it as you wish and uh, uh it was interesting as Santoksing died shortly after completing the text and when it was read it was so uh widely loved that the akalta could actually made it uh a mandate that around every takat from hazur sahib patna sahib they would read this every day in the evening mm-hmm. uh, to the sangha, to the to the congregation such that they would have then a standard uh, uh in regard to history so when this discourse is done with the sudesh prakash when people are explaining the text um the person who is doing the discourse doesn't read the text and then uh, just go up there and freestyle it. What they do is they always have the text beside the person doing discourse. Somebody would read the text and then somebody would do the dis- discourse such that it shows that, yeah, what this Gyanni, what this preacher, what this scholar is saying that does actually derive from the text. And the congregation then um, gets the benefit of, of hearing the beauty of the poetics as well. Can you talk a little bit about like the you know like like the you, you, we alluded it to to a little bit earlier, but but how um, you know history as this sort of dry kind of literal um, sequence like linear sequence of events maybe from like a Western perspective is not really the kind of history that we're encountering in this book and can you talk about like the sources and sort of how this um, history may have been constructed and and how like our conception of say of what we would call like factual uh, and I'm, I'm making air quotes which nobody can see um, <laughs> you know it is not the same sort of standard by which um, Kavi Sintoksing would have been basing his is uh, the things that he was including in the, in this book? Well, firstly, as people who are reading it now, um, you know, and this text was written some 150 years ago. So the way that we are reading this text now is not going to be the way that people read it at that time. Also, sure. the way that we're understanding notions of history is quite different from how people in India then and even now consider uh history so in that regard you know when people now might look at this text and there's portions of the text wherein people might classify that as mythology so um certain supernatural occurrences um perhaps some of the stories relating to guru Nanak when he's um there's one particular story where he goes to the land of the ants and and uh these type of stories would draw obviously um y- you know a weird reaction to a reader today but i think that the way in which they were reading it at that time was more in the sense of getting a context of some of the of the writings of the gurus and explaining the philosophy of the gurus. So mm-hmm. if they were to write a story that may not be factually true and may not be true in the sense that 
uh, this occurred um, historically in the sense that oh, he he went there on this day. But that dialogue, that discourse, that philosophy that's meant to be drawn out from that discussion or that particular event, that was the point of that story. You know, the, there's a deeper understanding that um, these stories, some of them, are written to um, basically demonstrate the philosophy, to make mm. the philosophy manifest in a dialogue, in a colorful, playful, humorous or, or sad way, such that the reader or the listener can um, get uh, involved emotionally to the story so that the philosophy is not, uh, uh, as they say, just like uh, uh, eating butter, but there's some sugar sprinkled on top. I wonder if I, I can put you on the spot. I wonder if you can if you can remember any of those stories and their and their teachings. Um, I mean, there's one particular one that I, I find very humorous, um, which is actually interesting because, I mean, we can talk about this as well. I just uh, just we're recording this now on the day that I just released uh, this proverb, uh, Punjabi proverb book. Um, and some of these proverbs actually find its way, I mean, they're uh, through time, right? So some of, some of these proverbs are linked to some of the writings or some of the sayings of the gurus. So there's one particular story that's, that uh, I find uh, hilarious is when Guru Nanak, uh, sorry, when Guru Gobind Singh was traveling down south um, towards the Dakhan area, he comes into contact with these, uh, they're called Dadu Pantis. Dadu Pantis are basically a group that was formed around the same time as the Sikh community um, under this guy called Dadu. And they wrote very similar type of literature, different but similar in the same type of languages. They were a group that paralleled along the Sikh community uh, in a very fascinating way, in a way that scholars recently now are, are digging into. But so there was a bit of competition between these communities, right? And as I believe the Sikh community marshalized as a, on a group before they did, but they also were a bhakti, like a devotional type of movement that did turn very martial in a, later in its history. Interesting. But the discussion that's funny is that Guru Gobind Singh is going down south, he meets a couple of these, uh, uh, these Dadu Pantis, and there's a discussion that takes place. And the discussion that takes place is that uh, the Dadu Pantis, one of them was saying to Guru Gobind Singh, oh, uh, we had heard about the plight that you suffered um, from leaving Anandpur Sahib and, and your kids have, have been martyred and, um, you know, you're going through this very difficult time. It's very amazing that you have basically forgiven um, the wrongdoers, that you've kind of, you've left that area and uh, you're forgiven and this is the way of a sadhu this is the way of a holy person is to you know whatever happens to you you forgive and they actually in the story that santok singh's writing they have this dialogue which is basically like a rap battle you know one of them recites uh, a couplet like a dohra and it, it's rhyming right so um the dalu panti says this line and he and the basic gist of that line is oh um the way of a sadhu is that if somebody throws a brick at, or sorry, a stone at you, you take that stone and you place it on your head in, in the sense that, you know, you put it on your head, you, you fold your hands, you say, okay, I'm sorry, and you go home, you know, uh, you don't retaliate. And 
And he said that line to Gurum Singh, and then Gurum Singh says uh, basically a, like another line back to him in in a, in a verse of in a dohara. And uh, the line, the the second line is Jeko So if somebody so- throws a stone at you, your response to that is to throw a brick at them. And he said this, <laughs> and he said. Um, to those people, for those people who are protectors of righteousness, uh, those people, they can't abide by this rule that, oh, you're just going to turn the other cheek or you're just going to apologize and walk away. No, our response is that if anybody even throws a stone at you, you're going to throw, throw a brick at them. And <laughs> I found that so hilarious because that, that proverb about responding with a brick to a stone is a Punjabi proverb that you find across time as well. So, you know, in the 19th century, uh, late uh, 19th century, early 20th century, when the British were in Punjab, you had songs talking about the British being in Punjab, saying that, okay, we suffered a stone throw from these British. Now us Punjabis are going to take a brick and smash these British out of out of India. And then you see it, uh, so you see it there, and you see it in even modern songs. You know, you have this, uh, these tropes, find their way through all uh, different literature, songs, uh, all over the place. So it's quite funny that the author, Santok Singh, is either using this well-known trope about the response to a stone was a brick, or that the saying from Guru Gobind Singh was so powerful that that line then finds its way across Punjab in a variety of forms. And so that speaks to uh, the long-lasting uh, impact, I'm sure, of this of this book as well. Um, especially since it it, be, it came into regular um, recitation and study at the fonts, excuse me, the takats, which were the the kind of the seats of like temporal or political authority uh, for the six that were across Punjab and in in India. Um, and, uh, and I imagine we're just like very, very widely taught and spread, uh, from that point on. And to this day, I mean, there's still recitation of the, of, of this, this Suresh Prakash, um, uh, regularly at, at, at many different, uh, around the world, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, Absolutely. Um, so you see this text all over, and and what's interesting, <clears throat> why I wanted to study this text is that you actually even see this. You know, this is a very difficult text to understand. You know, compared to for the modern Punjabi. So, because this text is written in a very sophisticated Braj Pasha, um, so modern Punjabi readers, listeners would not understand it. Yet, you see it in Gurdwaras in Vancouver. You see it in Gurdwaras in uh, Seattle. You see it in Toronto. Uh, California as well. Um, this text in the diaspora is being read, which is, you know, it just speaks to the power of this text. You know, this text has traveled 150 years and still now, even in a Western context, this is being translated where uh, somebody will recite this text. And then I've even seen on YouTube some English um, discourses on this text as well. So um, on mangalacharan.com, there's also portions of the text that have been translated. So it's it's quite amazing that this text has traveled so long and still has significant influence. And it, but it hasn't been completely translated. Is that correct? 
No, it is. Yeah, actually, the portions on mangalacharan.com might be some of the only translations that we have of the text, um, which is actually quite, um, which is one of the sadder issues with it, in in that, um, you know, this text is uh, being translated, uh, you know, to the Punjabi community in a... uh, in the context of a Gurdwara, but nobody has written uh, a translation of the entire text. It would be quite difficult. This text is a, uh, it is a massive text. You know, it, it uh, you know, shadows Guru Granth Sahib in, in length. But, mm. you know, that is a task going forward. Um, but for those, you know, uh, listeners who do want to get a, a sense of the text, you can go to uh, mangalacharan.com and there are portions um, that I've posted that are translated. So, um, that, that, I think this is a good place to kind of shift gears and talk a little bit about this other, this new uh, endeavor, the um, book of 54 Punjabi uh, proverbs that you're just releasing today. Um, um, we'll be sure to put a link uh, in the description so that folks can find that. Um, so, so wh- how did you... Like, how did you come to want to put this work together? This work, actually, I mean, it came together really organically. Um, I was reading a, a compilation of these Punjabi proverbs. They were not in English. Uh, it was a work by a professor in India who had who had assembled, um, you know, a bunch of these. And, and reading them out, actually, to my mom, it was actually really funny because um, she would say that oh you know my mother so my grandmother would say these when we were young and uh you know brought back a lot of interesting memories i just thought it was interesting i've been posting it on my twitter page um it took uh people really enjoyed it so i thought you know um translate these they've not been translated before i don't i don't believe so um yeah i just thought it would be really interesting you get to see certain ideas that the community has has held dear for for quite a long time right you know they manifest through these funny uh proverbs as well so i thought it'd be nice to share that and um did you like there there must be like a lot of i mean this 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 had to have been a a a tight selection i'm assuming How, how did you um make your selection for the this first 54 (laughs) <laughs> honestly it's much like my work on Mangalacharan where um, you know as I go through on Mangalacharan what I do is as I go through different texts if there's a specific portion that I really enjoy or you know that catches my eye um, and I'm working to translate it just for myself I say okay why not share it for the public as well um, and this it was the same regard you know whatever interesting proverb i was telling uh my mom or, or my masses you know i thought i might as well write it out and, and share it for the public as well so um i you can see as you go through the book you know some of the proverbs bring out interesting ideas or inter- inter- interesting sentiments about um you know punjabi culture what they value what they don't value um important traits for a person to have or not to have um it was just it was just kind of looking at the culture through a different lens mm. and um i thought you know being uh, you know myself i'm born and raised in ottawa uh canada so you know it was quite foreign to me some of these ideas but um i thought uh yeah why not share them and 
as I said before, like I, in the Gurpata, Suraj Prakash Granth, you see some of these proverbs being used. And um, it's just interesting that it these travel through time and, and across cultures. Uh, so it's not just a, like these proverbs are, you can assume that they're being used um, by Muslims in Punjab as well, because they're not strictly, you know, some of them talk about Ghazis, so uh, Muslim lawmakers, and some of them talking about uh, camels and more of these animals that would be uh, seen on the western side of Punjab. So, you know, these these proverbs cross, uh, you know, cultures and boundaries and, and religions and peoples. And I just thought, you know, uh, you know, might as well share them. What's interesting is that you find very similar versions of these proverbs in the West as well. But obviously, these versions that we have that I put out, you know, they have that Punjabi flavor to them, right? So it's different. Totally. Um, so you get a really um, Punjabi flavor when you when you read these, and and people who uh, read them will will get a sense of it. Like Do for one, have... for example, yeah, uh, go for it. Um, when somebody's you know making a sarcastic remark about somebody's uh, immorality or or their how corrupt they are, you know, in English they might say, "Oh, that guy's crooked," right? And uh, and in Punjabi the the expression is. Uh, jalebi vargi siddhi. So that guy's straight, like a jalebi. Which anybody Punjabi person who knows what a jalebi <laughs> is, it's like one of those desserts that's super circular, like a spiral. Right. So, <laughs> so good. I thought it. I thought it was funny that a lot of these proverbs were related to uh, food, you know, and uh, totally. You know, what is just like if it's about kio, like uh, clarified butter. If it's about milk. If oh, it's about oh. sweets. So I, I thought. I saved yeah. one that was my one of my favorites that was specifically about um, clarified butter, uh, which was, <laughs> oh man, I gotta find it. So chacha ik pio, so daru ik kyo, which is a hundred uncles are worth one father, a hundred bottles of alcohol are worth one of ghee, and I can't <laughs> think of a more I think I think that that's so funny. Like I just I love that. I think that's hilarious. And it's like yeah, it's like your like yo Gee and your dad are extremely important things in Punjabi <laughs> culture. Um, there's a lot yeah. of really good ones in there. Do do we know anything about like I, I'm sure this is difficult to to pinpoint, but do do you have any sense or or any idea about like um, like when some of these came into existence or maybe like sort of maybe which segments of society might have been using some of them or um, is that well, kind of... This is the thing with Proverbs is that, you know, the, how does it become a proverb in right. the sense that it, it does when, you know, such a large part of the community, the society starts using it, you know? It's not, so if one, if me and you have a saying that nobody else is using, that's not really a proverb, you know? That's sure. not... Uh, that's just our little inside joke. But when it becomes, because because it's so widespread, right? Because it's used so often by a large community, then it has this, has this like a holding power that can travel through time, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it is difficult to pinpoint, you know, uh, when some of these came about. Some of them you can see are quite rooted um, in Gurbani, like some of the proverbs that I didn't put in there, but some of them are just basically small snippets of Gurbani um, that, you know, had such a lasting power, you know, that res- uh, resonated so popularly that people just started saying it and it became a thing. That, okay. Yeah. 
it became used like a proverb as well. So what's interesting is that I guess the way these hold power, it's constant use, you know, across time with a large amount of uh, the community using them um, shows that, you know, it resonates with people and it would, I mean, it has that flavor of the Punjabi community with it, which is quite different uh, than the Western uh proverbs and i'm saying this as i'm thinking about a proverb that's uh <laughs> that's basically what i'm doing here one of the proverbs was uh oh man i have it on the tip of my tongue now it's the the question was about uh the question was about uh hold on here oh here it is Sval javab so the question was about like uh wheat and the the answer was about chickpeas which is basically <laughs> saying uh, he, uh, he sidestepped the question and he's not answering the question which is what i'm doing so it's that but that's the lasting power of these proverbs is that you know they because they're so uh they drop this imagery right they can sure. convey like a, a like a a large amount of meaning um a large amount of meaning used in a variety of circumstances through this simple four letter a four word phrase you know sval kanak javab shole like uh, and then you think about that every time you uh, pull like the sidestep <laughs> that i just did totally well and it's such a nice way to like as for me as like a you know my punjabi is just is limited um it's been a really fun way to kind of access new words and and yeah new just just i mean a saying is such a powerful way to like access people's like culture and their way of thinking and their way of, yeah their way of thinking about things and i can think back to like living in punjab and like whenever i would share learn a new saying i worked most of my colleagues when i was working there were punjabi and it was always really like a fun moment when and you know me a, a straight you know a, a foreigner um would you know learn a new saying and pull it out um was always like a right. such like a it was like it made everybody laugh because it was like you know the the words the words that you're saying are so familiar but the the person who's delivering them is not who i would expect to be uh delivering that that you know classic <laughs> thing so as it it's really it's really a fun way to learn how to communicate um I wonder, one of the things that I noticed was there was a lot of, um, or there were several that were about kind of rich versus poor, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, so, you know, <clears throat> whatever tensions, issues the community had, um, I'm, you know, they, they manifest themselves in some of these proverbs as well. So um, another thing that I did leave out from the book um, because I felt like the context was so kind of far removed, was that there's quite a lot of proverbs that deal with different castes as well. So right. you can imagine that the Jebi community is likely 50 to 70% of her jack, uh, the farmer caste. So there are, because of that large community, um, there's a significant amount of proverbs dedicated to them, as well as dedicated to Bonnier, which are basically traders, um, differentiating themselves. And, and you know, because each cast wants to um i guess speak to their own characteristics and, and some of it can be self-deprecating others can be kind of 
um, just ego boosting. Um, but because right. we're so far removed from uh, that context, the other context about the rich versus poor, I think, does still resonate, um, especially in America. Uh, I know you're helping Albert and Bernie Sanders, so maybe you can uh, include some of these problems. <laughs> but um, well, well, I definitely do not speak for Bernie Sanders at all. Um, but I thought that this this one was very interesting, which was Ohi Raj Changa Jite Dud Dahi Ganga. <laughs> which is that government is good wherein yogurt and milk flows like the river Ganga. So you can you know? see what people had an importance on, you know, because if there was, you know, large amounts of, you know, traditionally Punjab, uh, where if people who had cattle, people who had a lot of milk and butter, those people were well off, you know. Um, so, you know, if the community had high supplies of, you know, milk and uh, yogurt and uh, clarified butter, you know, then that community was doing well. Like that was an indication of economic prosperity at that time, you know. Um, so what's also interesting is that through these proverbs, then you get to look back at the community and say, oh, you know, that's what they valued at that time. Imagine if we would have to write a proverb today, it would be quite different, right? So nobody's, sure. nobody's thinking they're doing well because they're fridge is filled with milk but uh, <laughs> at that time you know it, it was quite a quite a thing and right. uh, i did say in regard to you know these proverbs give an indication of how people were thinking at that time as well so to understand a language first of all doesn't require you only to understand uh the grammar and the vocabulary uh it also requires you to understand figures of speech idioms and proverbs as well, right? So, um, because some of these you can't translate literally, you know, uh, a literal translation doesn't effectively draw out the full context of how some of these proverbs are used, right? And uh, you can imagine then if you're reading a text uh, that has one of these proverbs or a short idiom, like if you were to translate that literally, it would mean perhaps something totally out of context. Sure. Um, so to understand these proverbs and idioms, they give you an idea um, about how the community was was thinking as well. Not only, uh, it's not only funny, but it's also, uh, it does educate you a little bit. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, I, I, I would say I definitely like felt that as I was reading through it and then reading your short, but very like useful explanations of each saying, um, I, I I definitely felt that that was that was the case. Um, there was there's there's so many really good ones in here and sayings that, for whatever reason, one might not expect to hear. Um, I know that um, before we go, I know that you, um, you know, I was going to ask you what one of the outcomes uh, of sharing this work was. But um, before we talked on the broadcast, you were talking about how a friend of yours was reading an early draft of this with their grandfather and something really lovely yeah. happened. Yeah, so what also really inspired me to get this work out was that when I started sharing uh, some of these proverbs through tweets, through, through my Twitter feed, a lot of people were messaging me saying that, you know what, I actually said this to my grandfather or I've heard my grandmother say this. Um, and when I started writing these, uh, I did it with a team. Um, some of them 
they shared these with their grandfather. Um, and he was actually, you know, they would have a laugh going back and forth. And I was thinking about how we live today. Um, for those in the uh, Indian community who are born in the diaspora, Canada, America, UK, or wherever, they, there's a big generational gap between us, you know, from the grandparents who lived in India, you know, in a time when, you know, computers didn't exist, you know, there's like a generational gap in a whole, uh, in a vast way, you know, not just technologically, socially, um, and culturally, and then language wise as well. So to be able to bridge that in any way, in a, even a humorous way, uh, where, you know, you can share one or two of these proverbs with your, uh, your grandparents or your parents, and they can think back and say, oh, you know what, we say this in the villages and, Oh, I've heard my grandfather say this, or and uh, you can share like a laugh where where oftentimes, you know, I've seen um grandkids have a very uh difficult time communicating in any meaningful meaningful way uh with their grandparents, you know, because perhaps the language barrier is there. Um perhaps uh socially um they just don't know how to connect on certain things. Obviously they're not watching the same TV shows, obviously they're not reading the same books. Um so the interests are totally different. Yet they can connect over over something fun like this. Uh, and I thought, you know, that might be very uh, valuable to people, you know, having those moments with, with grandparents, um, you know, uh, would be like a really fun experience. And I hope, you know, that is the experience of, of most of the people that uh, to get this book that, you know, if you do have it, please, please share it with uh, uh, with friends and family and, and see, you know, their responses. It's awesome. I love that. I um, I wish I had a Punjabi grandparent to do that with. <laughs> well, now you'll be all set when you go back to India and visit, and you can uh, roll into the village and start saying some of these things. Hey, yeah, absolutely. Oh man. Oh, thank you. Well, well. <laughs> um, well, it's it's uh, wonderful as usual. We'll make sure to have a link um, to all of Jawala's work uh, in the show notes. Um, and, uh, yeah, we really thank you for being on and it's always a pleasure. And, yeah, no, thanks uh, for having me again. This is the third time I think, and you're not sticking me yet. So <laughs> <laughs> definitely not. Definitely not. All right. Thank you. Yeah, take care. That was Jwala Singh. You can find him online on all platforms at J V A L AAA and his project Mangalacharan at Mangalacharan on all platforms or at mangalacharan.com. You can order Jawala's book at 54punjabiproverbs.com. Finally, you can find us at The One Pod on Twitter. Thanks for listening.